This podcast is produced by the Center for Deployment Psychology at the Uniformed Services University of the Health Sciences. The views expressed are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of the Uniformed Services University, the Department of Defense, or the U.S. government. In addition, references to any specific companies, products, processes, or services does not necessarily constitute or imply endorsement by the Uniformed Services University, the Department of Defense, or the U.S. government. Welcome to CDP's podcast, Practical for Your Practice. We give you actionable intel to support what you do. One colleague to another. Well, hello, everybody, and welcome to Practical for Your Practice. I'm Andy Santanello, and as usual, I've got Dr. Kevin Holloway here with me. You want to say hello, Kevin? Hey, everybody. Glad to have you with us. And we are excited and honored to have Dr. Ryan Warner with us today on the podcast. How you doing, Dr. Warner? Doing great. I'm glad to be here. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for being here. So do you want to tell our listeners a little bit about your background and, and what you do? Yes. So I am Dr. Ryan C. Warner. I'm a licensed psychologist, uh, researcher, speaker, and consultant. I'm also the founder and CEO of R.C. Warner Consulting, in which we provide leadership development, uh, diversity, as well as in- wellness enhancement uh, for organizations and Fortune 500 companies around the globe. I'm really passionate about diversity and inclusion. I'm passionate about uh, promoting out, promoting uh, wellness uh, within uh, marginalized groups. And I'm really excited to be here today to talk more uh, about uh, diversity and specifically microaggressions, another topic that I'm interested and passionate about. And uh, you know, we're extremely thankful you made the time for us today. I know you're a very busy man um, and uh, you're doing a lot of really important work. And so we are really excited to have the opportunity to chat with you about microaggressions in, in clinical practice. Oh, and give a background. So I've, I've worked with a lot of different populations. Uh, currently, I work with active duty as well as veterans uh, conducting psychotherapy as well. Uh, it's important to note that statements of fact and opinion today are expressed of myself and not of uh, any other represented entity. Um, and I really enjoy uh, working with, uh, you know, the veteran active duty population, uh, conducting like trauma work, uh, also, you know, um, talk, working on like substance use as well. Um, so I'm really excited uh, to, to collaborate with you all today um, to specifically help enhance uh, the, this particular population. It's a definitely a population that's near and dear to our hearts too. That's the work we do as well. And so, yeah, we're right there with you. Yeah. Uh, both Kevin and I are also, we have backgrounds in, in, uh, in trauma and PTSD treatment. In fact, we're two of the PTSD subject matter experts um, at the center. So it's uh, interesting. We all kind of uh, have a little bit of background on that yeah. too. Cool. So you mentioned microaggressions, and that's a term that I think is maybe a bit more familiar than it used to be for folks in our field. Um, but I thought maybe a place we could start is with a, a good definition of microaggressions. So how would you define microaggressions? Yeah, so I would define microaggressions as subtle, covert forms of discrimination that impact marginalized populations. Okay, so microaggressions, I look at as like little mosquito bites. You know, you get one mosquito bite, you know, you brush it off. Are you going, you're going through <laughs> throughout the day, you know, live your life. But when you get another mosquito bite and another one and another one in the same location over and over and over again, then it becomes to be impactful, right, to your well-being. So these subtle forms of discrimination could be verbal, uh, they could be nonverbal as well, they can be environmental, uh, et cetera. 
And ultimately, research shows that they have, you know, significant impact on certain groups, uh, whether that be individuals of different gender statuses or religious backgrounds or racial ethnic identities, et cetera. So, yeah, I'd be interested in talking more about that today. So it's interesting that you, you gave us some different categories that they might show up in, in verbal and nonverbal and environmental. I'm curious if you could give us maybe some examples of each of those and not that they're meant to be exhaustive, but, but maybe to illustrate for us what those different kinds might be. Sure. So I can just provide some personal examples. So sure. I identify as a black male um, and as a black male uh, throughout my education from microaggressions, um, from my supervisors, from other psychologists, from other mental health professionals. So one microaggression I constantly receive, you can't see how tall I am, uh, but I'm about 6'4 or so. And ultimately, I've had supervisors in a clinical setting throughout different rotations uh, during my schoolwork. They say, oh, well, I'm surprised that you're not a basketball player. Mm. You know, and I, I would look at them like, what do you mean? I, so I can't be a young black PhD student? You know, um, and, he's like, and I've heard multiple times, oh, well, you don't look like you're a PhD student. You know, so little things like that, like it, it wasn't meant to probably hurt me or intentionally harm me. Uh, but those things have uh, have an impact on my well-being when I experience it over and over and over again, yeah. especially by individuals in the mental health pro uh, profession. Right. Uh, so that's like a verbal microaggression example. Uh, a nonverbal could be, you know, going to uh, your, your psychotherapist and seeing that no one on their wall looks like you. So for instance, if you identify as an Asian American male or Asian female, uh, whatever that may be, and you look on the wall to, for your, your therapist, you only see pictures of white men, right? Um, then you may not feel that as included, right? Um, and, and you may not feel as comfortable in that set, right? Or maybe you see a Confederate flag, for instance, you know, um, and ultimately, you know, you may be offended by that, right? So there's a lot of different, you know, examples that come to mind, but those are the ones that I've seen patients convey to me um, when they came to my office and they indicated that they saw someone of different racial ethnic background than them, and they didn't feel as comfortable, you know, talking to them about their challenges, um, you know, due to these environmental and verbal microaggressions that they experienced. And it's not just the, like a one individual one all by itself standalone, but the, as you're saying, it's kind of that collection, that additive nature of uh, mm -hmm. all these things together. That can be yes. I guess the reason I, I, I say that isn't, it, it is not in any way to try to, to excuse um, any individual microaggression. I think probably all of us in one capacity or another has perhaps been guilty of, of, of doing one of those things. And it's not that that individual one thing, you know, we, we need to just fix that one thing and all things are fixed, but consider just the, the whole totality of all those things together. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Yeah. yeah. And I'm not sure about you all, but I, I know multiple times I've experienced, uh, well, I've committed microaggressions, you know, um, mistakenly, you know, mm -hmm. um, whether it be like a gender microaggression, for instance, um, assuming if I go out on a double date with one of my friends, assuming that my male friend is going to pay for the bill instead of, uh, you know, his his spouse, his sure. fiance, right, or uh, his wife, right? So little things like that, you know, um, I know that it's important to, number one, have that awareness, you know, that you're making a mistake and it's okay to make mistakes. Yeah. You know, um, no one wants to be racist or sexist, uh, et cetera. Um, and ultimately, if we're able to just be more aware of the biases that we may hold, then we can enhance our relationships with others and we can be able to help our clients and patients uh, better as well. I think that's one of the things that makes this particular topic t hard to talk about 
you know, because so many clinicians, and I'm going to put myself in this camp too. The first thing that maybe comes to mind is, well, you know, this kind of binary way of looking at it, like either you're a good non-racist, non-microaggressing person, or you're not. And the focus then almost to me, it's fear-based. It almost becomes, well, I don't want to, I don't want to make those types of mistakes. So how do I avoid making them at all ever? Um, And, uh, you know, listening to your, your recent um, webinar with us and and reading some of your, your blog posts, you know, one of the things that you tend to emphasize is we all have, we all have bias. And you mentioned that awareness piece as being really important and approaching this issue Uh, you know, with the expectation that you do have biases and very likely you have done microaggressions and you might do them again. And being aware of those things and open to it is, is probably a better starting place than how do we just never do it? Or how do we like prove to ourselves we're, we're not quote unquote racist or bad. And it's important to know that as someone who may commit a microaggression, it is not up to us to decide if that's a microaggression or not. Right. Okay, that, that's really important. It's up to the individual that perceived, you know, that remark or that, you know, um, environment, et cetera, that that's a microaggression. And that's what makes it very tricky, right? Because it's subjective. You know, you can take two people from very similar backgrounds and they can experience the same type of event. And one may perceive it as a microaggression and one may not, right? So it gets kind of tricky, but I know that there, there's, there's ways in which we can tell if maybe something we said or we did is, is offensive. I know, for instance, if, uh, like, for instance, when I made that mistake uh, recently, when I went out on a double date um, and I just assumed that my male friend would pay for the bill, um, when we uh, would pay their half of the bill when we went out at a restaurant, you know, I, I saw the face of his uh, fiance and she, she gave me a nonverbal cue, like, oh, why did you, you know, give that bill to him, right? So I was able to recognize, hey, I think I made a mistake. And then I was able to engage in that dialogue uh, with her about that, right? So there are ways that we can tell, um, because a lot of individuals, I know when I experienced microaggression, sometimes I didn't feel comfortable coming forth and saying, hey, what you said, what you did, I didn't appreciate, because there's different power and privileges, right? So for instance, a couple of years ago, when I was a student, a PhD student, I didn't feel comfortable going to my supervisor and indicating that, hey, what you said, what you did, I felt it was offensive because that's the person that signs off on my hours for right. me to graduate. Right. So there's different barriers um, when it comes to individuals, you know, conveying that, hey, that I, I didn't like what you did. But that's why it's up to us to enhance our awareness about the biases that we may hold. I think that's such an important point. And I, 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 not that you didn't, you, you did a fantastic job of expressing it, but just for my purpose of, of kind of consolidating it in my head is that, you know, well, that's not what I meant. Isn't an, an okay response, right? Like you said, it really is up to the person's personal perception of whether or not it's a microaggression, not the person who maybe did it. And so, you know, it's, it's important to be cultivating that awareness, that sensitivity that, that we can step outside of what we meant and, and recognize how what we're doing is impacting another person and, and think about how we can adjust that, about how we're, what we're doing or what we're saying or not doing or saying is landing on another person, not just, well, they just need to know what I meant by that. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Yeah. yeah. I wonder if well, there's a lot in your last response that I think is important to highlight. One of the things that you were talking about, kind of a, a personal example in a non non clinical setting and and sort of 
paying attention to and being aware of maybe indications, nonverbal indications, maybe that you have done something that would be a microaggression. Do you have any thoughts about for clinicians in a clinical setting where there is that power differential, maybe several layers of it, cultural, but also, you know, patient, client, or supervisor, um, supervisee, what are some of the things that clinicians might want to cultivate in their, uh, their efforts to become more aware of potentially, um, noticing if perhaps a microaggression has occurred? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's great. So number one, I feel that as culturally, I don't use like to use the word culturally competent, but more culturally aware um, mm-hmm. providers, we need to be comfortable engaging in dialogue about culture within a therapeutic setting. Okay. So I'm not sure about you all, but I can think of the last 10 patients that I saw in the last few weeks. And I'll say in 90% of those sessions, some form of culture came up, whether that be um, military uh, rank, whether that be uh, their gender background, their religious background, uh, political views, et cetera, right? Culture is always you know, embedded within the therapeutic setting. And according to APA guidelines, you know, as providers that are trying to do no harm, as providers that are trying to best meet the needs of our patients, it is imperative that we understand um, and, and try to understand, try to improve our knowledge about the cultural backgrounds of others, right? So number one, we need to be enhance our, I, I like to say, enhance our muscles around speaking um, and engaging in dialogue about culture in a therapeutic setting. And that way, when we're more comfortable, now we can engage in dialogue. So for instance, if I made a mistake you know, in therapy and uh, maybe for instance, I assumed that someone was a um, heterosexual uh, male and maybe they identify you know, as a gay male instead. You know, if I made that mistake about about not asking that person about how they identify, you know, then I can have that dialogue with them and say, hey, I realize that I assume that you are married to someone of the opposite sex. But I realize that your language around it um, didn't didn't line up with that. So let, let's talk about that. <clears throat> I feel that I made a mistake, you know, <clears throat> and and ultimately, you know, um, you know, how do you feel about that? And then we can go back and forth. We say, hey, well, I get that all the time. You know, um, individuals assume that I'm a straight male, but identify as a gay male. And that can be really hard for me, you know, because I feel that, you know, I'm trapped, you know, um, in, in this domain in which I don't feel as comfortable, right? I mean, I can't fit, really be myself. So this was a conversation I just recently, you know, had with one of my patients uh, about their sexual identity. And, and ultimately, I was able to learn from him. Uh, and uh, I was able to admit that I made a mistake. And we were able to improve our our therapeutic alliance after we had that dialogue, right? Because a lot of therapists feel that we're going to rupture therapeutic alliance if we engage in that discussion. But actually, research shows that it strengthens that cultural cultural alliance. You know, when we're being vulnerable as providers, you know, uh, when we can admit that, hey, we don't have all the answers and, hey, we make mistakes too. And even modeling that in a way too that Yes, I, I love what you're saying. It, it, it reminds me too that you know we we're we're engaging with with folks clinically. We're we're talking about all sorts of uncomfortable things all the time, and and we get real personal and real intimate all the time. And yet mm-hmm. there are some of those topics that feel like we shouldn't go there because we might say something wrong or it's going to we- feel weird and awkward. And 
and uncomfortable, as you said. And I love how you describe that too. Look, we kind of need to get comfortable with the discomfort, right? Like we need to get comfortable with the idea that we're going to sometimes say things and we need to be open about approaching that. Yes. And I can also speak on the opposite lens as well. So as a provider, I want to be able to enhance my well-being. So I see a, a provider's will, you know, um, for my mental health and my mental well-being. And this individual that I see identifies as a white female. And I really appreciate how I'm able to talk about, you know, my experience as a black male. And she tells me, hey, I can't really um, I don't know how it feels to be a black male. You know, I can't imagine uh, what you've been going through, you know, but but ultimately I'm here for you and I'm, and I'm here to learn more about your experience. So when she was able to convey that to me, I felt I felt that, you know, I belonged in that in that therapeutic setting. I felt that she really tried to listen to me and my experiences. And ultimately, we need more providers to do that. Yeah, yeah that, that willingness to to even just engage in the conversation. You know, it, whether it's acknowledging that something didn't go the way that they had intended and there has been a rupture or just, you know, kind of being obvious and owning your own background and how that might be different and being in the habit of having those conversations, you know, making it something that you do on a regular basis. And, you know, you mentioned getting more comfortable and I'm guessing that's one of the ways that you might suggest doing that, just making a habit of getting in these conversations. Do you have other thoughts about how clinicians who want to improve you know, their, their ability to, um, you know, address these issues can get more comfortable. Number one, we need to engage in psychoeducation, right? Mm -hmm. So not just going to one diversity training, uh, every year, but trying to enhance our knowledge, maybe reading new books that we never have read before or watching different Ted talks or YouTube videos, right. Or also spending time with individuals different than ourselves. So, for instance, I urge the listeners right now to reflect on who you follow on Instagram or Facebook and, you know, social media. Are they the people who belong to the same social identities that you belong to? Are they the same people in your same career or have similar ideologies and, and ways of thinking? You know, if so, it's time to branch out. It's time to follow new people. It's time to spend time with others so you can learn from their cultural background so you can be more culturally aware. Okay. So psychoeducation, engaging um, you know, uh, with other cultures, uh, and also being able to implement different theoretical um, frameworks uh, that could be helpful as well. So uh, if you would like me to talk more about that, I can um, maybe give the listeners a specific framework that they can follow, you know, to engage in uh, cultural dialogue with their uh, patients as well as with their coworkers. I would love for you to talk about that. Um, and before we, we jump into that, just one of the things that struck me about your answer is you, you mentioned a couple of, of things that um, I think are, are important to keep in mind, you know, engaging, not just in re reading research articles about multiculturalism and cultural competency, but actually getting out and experiencing and participating in other, in other cultures, you know, um, you know, uh, getting to know and being around folks who are, are different than you rather than just continuing to be in that kind of echo chamber, social media created echo chamber, or even just your life where you're only seeing people of the same culture. So it, it's, it's really going beyond the boundaries of professionally what, you know, what you're kind of looking at, but actually in your personal life, you know, making the effort to put yourself in situations where you're going to be around people who are different and having conversation with people that are, that are different. And so I thought that was um, especially important because often I think the focus is, uh, you know, 
getting more education within your profession or your continuing education versus doing that in your personal life. I got a, I got yeah. a confession. And that's, that's hard. That's hard too. <laughs> it is hard. It can, yeah. It, well, it, it can certainly be tricky because I think, you know, just as you mentioned, it, it, people tend to follow like on social media, uh, you know, follow people who are, or are like them or they grow up in a culture and live around people who are like them. So it, it I, you know, it's going to take some effort. And if this is something that matters to you, putting in that effort and maybe going outside your comfort zone, actually, that's what it's going to require. Absolutely going outside your comfort zone. And it's funny, I, I was going to say, I have this confession to make is that as you started to talk about social media, my mind first immediately went to, okay, who am I friends with that I need to cut out? And, you know, and, and <laughs> as in, you know, who, who, who do I have connections with in social media who are, who are perhaps less committed to tolerance and inclusion and diversity? And it, you know, and it was this moment of like, okay, that, that's something I need to look at too in myself. It, it isn't about cutting out necessarily. I mean, there's, there's room for that, but expanding, including more, getting, going and connecting with more people who have, you know, different ways of seeing the world and themselves and their communities and, and, and that. So that, there's my little confession for the day is as you started to go there, my first thought was, how do I reduce rather than expand? And I think that's an important point. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, that's great. So um, you mentioned a model that clinicians may be able to use in addition to some of the suggestions you've already made. So would you be willing to tell us a little bit about that? Mm -hmm, definitely. So this model was created by uh, Dr. Dana Crawford. Uh, she's a psychologist. And ultimately, it's a framework to help us to move from awareness to concrete action. So we may engage in a lot of dialogue about how we can create more diverse workplaces and more inclusive therapeutic settings. But how do we actually implement that, you know, day to day? Um, so this model is called the Let Up model, and it's an acronym. Uh, and I'll go through each uh, each word. Um, ultimately, uh, Let Up stands for listen, empathize, tell your story, understand, and psychoeducate. Okay, so for instance, if we experience, you know, a triggering event, you know, um, or maybe uh, we hear something that just doesn't sit sit right with us, you know, maybe in our workplace or, you know, maybe a client conveys to us or we may convey to the client, et cetera. Um, if implementing the let up model could be helpful with engaging in productive uh, dialogue around culture, around diversity. Okay, so let up the first listen. Okay. So we, if a colleague has made a statement about like a particular group, you know, um, that you have deep emotional connections with, and maybe you experience a visual reaction, you know, uh, with that. Um, ultimately we have to first listen because what we tend to do as human beings, we tend to shut down. We tend to put up, you know, a, a shield. Uh, we tend to be defensive at first. Right. But we need to be aware of that. And we need to first just listen to their experiences. Okay, so I'll try to give an example to guide us through. Um, so I guess I'll think of a recent example. When I was in school a couple of years ago and a supervisor uh, conveyed to me, um, she told me I was working in a in a maximum security prison for a rotation that I was doing. And as one of the only black male staff members there, um, I realized nobody on staff looked like me. They were all white males and white females. But all the inmates um, or all the individuals who were incarcerated were looked like me. They were all black males. And I remember that I was in the office setting and I was just talking with one of my uh, peer students. 
uh, or peer interns. Uh, and my supervisor came out of nowhere and she said, Ryan, stop using inmate language when I was speaking uh, to one of my peers. And so I guess I was using a term that she felt that wasn't professional. I didn't say a curse word or anything like that. It wasn't in front of a patient. I was just being myself. I was just having an informal conversation in the office. And when she told me stop using inmate language, that made me you know, defensive at first. But implementing the let up model, I first tried to listen. I tried to understand you know, where she came from. Okay. So I, listening is not just, you know, verbal listening, but also listening to my internal processing, okay? Mm-hmm. So I realized physiologically, my heart started to beat fast. I started to, you know, become very angry and frustrated, right? I noticed this internal visceral reaction, okay? After I listened, I then implemented the E, which is empathize, okay? So regardless how I felt about that statement, it's important that I tried to sit in her shoes and empathize with her. Okay. So in this particular situation, I was the first black male um, in a long time that worked in this particular setting. Um, so maybe she didn't realize we you know what she said to me. Um, next, we had in, informal conversations uh, before, and she indicated that she grew up in an all white, uh, all white neighborhood, and she didn't have that many interactions with black males until she actually started working in the prison. Um, so I started to look in her shoes. Okay, maybe she just didn't realize how impactful that statement or offensive that statement was, you know, to another black male myself, right? So after I listened and empathized, I then was able to implement the T, which is tell your story. Okay. So we had a, I was able to build up the courage to, to speak with her later that day. And I was able to tell my story about how constantly I've experienced these ongoing microaggressions uh, within my educational um, uh, experiences. And, and ultimately, you know, I want to learn more about what she meant about that state. Okay. So I was able to implement self-disclosure, um, which we know is helpful, you know, with uh, building alliance, you know, um, and and that was able that was helped her uh, be able to realize where I came from. And then I was able to implement the U, which is understand. Okay, so it's important that you know I myself, you know, try to engage in additional cultural awareness of other groups, you know. So for instance, learn more about like uh, the white identity development model. Um, understand more about, hey, she just may not have been aware uh, of that uh, particular statement. Uh, and it's okay, you know, and I was able to ultimately psychoeducate her, um, the last P, uh, which is psychoeducate. I was able to implement um, psychoeducation uh, regarding how I felt that that was kind of offensive and I felt, you know, visceral reaction when she said that statement. And then we were able to engage in that dialogue about, hey, I didn't realize what I said, you know, impacted you so much. You know, I try to be more aware of of, um, those type of things, you know, in the future. So that was a productive, you know, uh, conversation that I had with my supervisor. And we were able to, you know, improve our relationship, you know, in the future and have additional discussions about, you know, bias and racism and, um, you know, the the correction system, uh, systemic racism, et cetera, you know, um, in the future, because I was able to implement that let up model. So that's just an example about how it can be implemented within practice. Um, and I gave an example with a supervisor, but you can also implement that let up model uh, with patients or with coworkers, et cetera, to engage in productive and meaningful dialogue. And, and what strikes me about it, I, I, the model is, you know, I, I love the different steps to it. And what strikes me about it is there's the, the initial delay, the awareness, you know, so not not necessarily reacting, but taking a moment to not only just 
acknowledge to yourself that this occurred, but also really checking in with yourself and, and kind of notice your internal dialogue, your feelings, your physiological reactions. There, there's that moment of awareness and then engagement after that in, in several different steps, which seems really critically important. Yes, yeah, so if, if anyone's ever interested in learning more about the model, all you have to do is Google, uh, you know, Dr. Crawford, a let up model and, you know, the uh, her research article should come right up. You're reading my mind because I was going to ask you about that. And certainly we can include some of those links and resources in our, in our uh, show notes so that our listeners can do some more research on it. Yes. Well, Dr. Warner, I want to thank you again for coming on the podcast today. And I know we're barely even scratching the surface. And one of the things that you said that really stuck out to me is that uh, if you're interested and this is a value for you as a clinician, you want to get uh, more competent in this area, this can't be something that you occasionally dig into. It should really become something that you're committed to and spending, you know, regular time kind of working on. And so if you had a couple of pieces of actionable intel, a couple of pieces of advice for our listeners about how they could, you know, continue to learn about the let up model, um, addressing microaggressions in clinical work. What might be just a couple of pieces of advice that you could give? Mm -hmm. So I often like to give a quote and it goes like this. Silence is compliance and only enhances and encourages injustice in the world. Oftentimes when we experience, you know, um, conflict, we try to shut down, right? And we feel that engaging, if we have a different ideology or a different viewpoint of someone else, then it's probably easy for us to avoid, right? And we try to teach our patients and not to avoid, and we teach our patients how to approach difficult situations. It's important for us as clinicians, as culturally aware clinicians, that we also approach discomfort, um, that we also do not shut down and, and be quiet when we hear injustice or we hear a discriminatory remark or we hear a microaggression or maybe we commit a microaggression you know, uh, within therapy, within our personal lives, within the workplaces. And ultimately, you know, APA, again, APA indicates that, you know, as providers, we should be consistently engaging and continued education and consistently trying to grow, you know, as human beings and as culturally uh, competent or culturally aware, you know, providers. You know, so it's really important to know that if we do want to provide the best care for our patients, that we implement, uh, we, we try to engage in self-awareness. Uh, we try to engage in continual diversity trainings and discussion and try to maybe start with, you know, our in-group. Maybe start with people we're close with. Maybe that be our spouse or our children um, or somebody that we can trust and try to have these uncomfortable conversations with them. And then maybe we can start to branch out and, and start to implement um, what we learned, you know, with our patients, with our coworkers, you know, with our supervisors, you know, et cetera. Um, so I think it's a continual, a continual journey that we need to engage in. No one's going to fully get to this point in which they're culturally competent, right? We have to always learn. I know for me, I'm always just trying to read and trying to learn up, learn uh, about different uh, cultural groups and, and that's going to help me not just be a better person, not to be just more inclusive uh, within my workplace, but also better treat my, the patients that I serve. Because we see people from all different backgrounds, right? Uh, no matter if they're in the military, you know, uh, no matter uh, their gender identity, their racial, ethnic identity, you know, everybody comes from different places. Everyone has different upbringings. Everyone 
comes to therapy with a layer of different identities. And we have to be able to enhance our muscles and our comfort around engaging in productive, meaningful dialogue with them um, when these things come up, but also when you know it's covert and it's under the surface. And maybe our patients is trying to, are trying to tell us something and we need to be aware of when to try to probe and try to engage with them, right? When it comes to diversity, when it comes to, comes to uh, cultural identity, et cetera. Time to practice what we preach, what we ask our clients to do, put yourself in uncomfortable situations so you can grow. That's what we need to do also. Well, I wanted to thank you again so much, Dr. Warner, for coming on our podcast and for um, those really important pieces of advice. And uh, thank everybody for listening today. Thank you so much for your expertise. I I feel really, really, what's the word? I I feel like I've got work to do and I I appreciate the, the push. Yes, we all do. So thank you so much for having me. I appreciate that. Thanks for listening to Practical for Your Practice. Please feel free to subscribe, rate, and join in on the conversation in the comments. Until next time.